Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only and does not replace your own financial, tax, legal, or financial product advice. Hello, Australia, and welcome to another episode of My Millennial Property. I'm Emily Wallace, and as always, joined by John Pigeon. Now, welcome if you're a first-time listener. If you've been around for a little while, uh, thank you again, and, and hopefully we're, we're doing okay for you to continue to tune in. They might not know, the listeners out there in Listen World, that there are other podcasts flying around in the My Millennial family. So we've got My Millennial Health, we've got My Millennial Career, we've got My Millennial Express, uh, which Glenn does in a, in a short and sharp 15-minute uh, segment, and there's Gen Z money for all the young ones coming through. So, uh, yeah, there's plenty out there other than the, the flagship podcast of My Millennial Money as well. What a family of podcasts. Literally, you can go to one place and learn about life essential items like health, money, property, all the rest of it. I think that's awesome. Yep. Um, and careers thrown in there too. So, um, as much as we definitely love you listening to ours, don't forget to go and check out the other podcasts too um, during your week of listening, wherever you may be listening from. So, John, I put a post out on my Instagram a few days back and I asked people to submit questions for the podcast. I thought I'd mix it up outside of the Facebook group. And boy, oh boy, did the followers deliver. I have got so many questions in my uh, inbox, which has been great. So, today's episode, we're going to read them out, give a shout out to whoever put them in and answer them as best as we can. So, let's get into today's episode. Now, there was one question that came up time and time again, and although we have covered it probably in a previous episode, I think it would be um, timely to answer it. So, I'm going to give a shout out to Dave Trusha, who was the first person to ask the question, but there was also um, a couple other people, Tim and Michelle, who asked this question. And the question is... How do I use equity from my principal place of residence to then go and buy an investment property? So, we're looking at effectively using the equity in that property to go and make another purchase. Mm, Very good question. And I love getting these questions for the first time as well, having uh, not read any of them coming through. So, let's give an example, shall we, Emily? Uh, We've got a a house worth 500000 and we've got a debt of, say, 300000 Right, so straight away we can see there's two hundred thousand of equity there now, uh, but it's not usable equity. The banks will say we'll lend you up to eighty percent of its value uh, minus your debt. So let's do that calculation: five hundred k times eighty percent is four hundred thousand minus the debt of three hundred thousand. 
gives you $100,000 of usable equity. Now, provided that you've got adequate servicing, as in your income is is at a reasonable level and you haven't got too many bad debts or any bad debts and your cost of living is not too bad, you should be able to pull out that 7,500K to go and use as equity for your next property. Now, usually when people do this, they're using it for uh, an investment purchase, but it may be for your owner-occupier, that's fine. Either way, it's $100,000 that you're borrowing from the banks because I get a lot of people, Emily, that say, yeah, this 100000 I come and take it and now I can just go and use it and I don't have to pay any interest on it. Well, that's absolutely incorrect. You need to pay interest on that $100,000 as soon as you draw it down. Right, and it's not it's not free money, is it? It's not like it's just a hundred thousand dollars that you've magically made, and oh, let's go shopping. That's not exactly how it works, is it? Yeah, no, that's right. And and the awesome thing is, you didn't really have to do too much to create that extra hundred k, right? You you just basically bought an asset, and yeah, you, you might have added some value to it with a cosmetic reno or something, but basically it's gone up in value because that's what good properties do Um, and you've been able to or you may have just paid some of it down which has created that equity as well but yeah you've basically been able to pull that 100k and that forms your 10% or your 20% deposit whatever you feel comfortable doing putting it down on on your next purchase which is which is awesome so that that whole cash versus equity it's an interesting conversation and we can go on for days about it Uh, But I would say that the difference between using cash and equity as a deposit is if you put 100 grand of cash into uh, a property purchase as a deposit, you own that $100,000 outright. Um, If you're using equity, you're paying interest on that $100,000. So the running costs of that property that you buy will be slightly higher because of the interest you're paying on that $100,000. It's a very valid point and a good distinguish between the two because I think uh, a lot of people don't quite understand that that equity, there is interest being charged against it. It's not just your money to take. So, um, definitely keep that in mind. And look, it's a really common situation that people, you might be a rent vester and now it's time to go and buy your home or you might be an owner and now it's time to go and buy your investment property. It's a very common way to fast track your ability to buy your next one rather than just waiting for your cash savings to accumulate over time um, and have that deposit ready. So, certainly something that many people are considering. Totally. And I I don't know about you, Emily, but I get a lot of people that have come to me that um, might be in their 30s, 40s, even 50s that say, oh, I think I've got some equity in my home, but I'm not sure. I don't know how it works. And I've Wanting, I've been wanting to invest or buy another property for years, but I di- really didn't know how to go about it, and I was a bit fearful of doing it. Uh, we we go and look, and there's like three, four hundred thousand dollars of equity. They could have bought something ten years ago. Um, so if you're sitting there listening in, saying, "Yeah, that's probably me," um, and and maybe you don't even know that the first step would be to get a valuation done and and then see from a a sophisticated mortgage broker just exactly what your uh, borrowing capacity and your position is. Yeah, most definitely. Obviously, that is step number one. One of the questions we did have come through is how do you get a valuation done? Um, So, just to answer that question is that literally either you engage a broker or the bank directly, um, I would probably strongly recommend going through a broker who can assess um, across a number of different lenders for you, but they will order 
evaluation. Actually, I'm just looking here. It was Madison who asked this question. How do you get your house revalued? So yeah, literally make contact with a broker. Um, they will organize for a evaluator to attend your property and complete that. And it's so quick. I literally had mine done last week and it, it was booked in for 10.30 in the morning and I got the figure um, at 10 o'clock the next day. So, it's like 24-hour turnaround. Yeah, that's pretty um, cool. Yeah. yeah. So. And it's probably an episode for another day, but there are different types of valuations, aren't there? So, we what we call desktop valuation where the valuer doesn't leave his, uh, his, his or her office and just uh, performs it that way. There's a curbside valuation where they'll drive past and not actually go in the property and, and perform the valuation then. And then there's a full valuation where they will go in and, and check every room and maybe take some photos and, and obviously make notes, etc. But uh, on that, as a couple of side notes, uh, one is maybe look at getting a second or third valuation so you get a good indication of what your property's worth. Time and time again, I've had it personally where valua uh, valuers have come in three separate valuers from three separate companies and been up to $200,000 difference in that valuation. So that really determines who you're going to choose as a lender for that next purchase or to indeed pull that equity out. Um, and then the other side note is people ask about getting an independent valuation. So someone that does valuations for a living, but they're not aligned essentially to the bank, right? So you cannot use that independent valuation or the banks won't want to use it. They'll use a valuer that's on their panel. Yeah, definitely. One thing that's springing to mind here that somebody tuning in might be thinking of, if I go for multiple valuations, does that impact like my credit score or my ability to get finance? Is that an impacting factor or is that something that you can do without any um, damage, I guess, to your file? Yeah, that's a really good question. And the short answer is no damage to your file. Uh, you can then choose that the valuer or the lender that you want to use based on the valuation maybe, and that's when you'll submit an application form. So yeah, no credit hits as such, um, unless the broker does it the incorrect way and puts in three different applications first and gets the three valuations after that. But yeah, you've probably got the wrong team member if that's the case. So just to clarify there, valuation first, then based on the valuation that you're happy with, you want to proceed with, with the lender, then we go and put our application forward and that's when the file starts rolling. Correct. Wonderful. Well, um, that certainly went deep dive, but I'm glad it did because it is such a common one that pops up um, on, on equity and going for a next property. And shout out, good on you. If you're owning a property and you're going for your next one, that's a massive milestone. Um, so, good on you. It's a good thing to be, to be buying more property and investing. Now, let's have a look what else we have on this list. Lana asks, is it better to have majority of debt against your investment property instead of your principal place of residence for negative gearing reasons? Could you give an example of this? Interesting one. So, Lana's basically saying, should I have a lot of debt tied to something that's an investment where someone else is, you know, effectively helping me pay it off through the form of a tenant paying rent? Or should I be having it against my own property? Now, I recall that recently we did an episode where we touched on this and John, you were saying um, relative to interest rates and also the ability to pay down um, P&I, mm. your general rule of thumb and also my um, viewpoint on this as well was that investment property 
would be interest only for as long as we possibly could have an interest only. Um, and our primary place of residence, we want to get rid of that debt as soon as we can. Does that apply to this question as well, do you think? Yeah, it does, Emily, absolutely. And I, I think we need to go and forward plan a little bit before we can um, get a full understanding of, of how this all plays out. Because if we buy our home as our principal place of residence, for example, and we get a feeling that we probably won't live in it for the next 10 years or 20 years, but we're going to hold on to that property, you may still pay P&I on that property because you're living in it. But any extra amounts of money, you may just keep in the offset account uh, to then use for that next purchase. So that will then be a cash deposit, which then still keeps your debt on your principal place of residence now turned into an investment property uh, at a reasonable level right now. Hopefully that's made sense to anyone listening. But uh, you, you need to forecast going forward what's the likelihood of something happening to then make an informed decision forward. So correct, you, we want to have that uh, principal place of residence debt paid down because that's essentially bad debt, meaning that it's non-income producing and you can't claim it, it against the uh, the income that you make on an annual basis, uh, whereas your debt on your investment property is tax deductible debt, generally speaking. So you're able to claim the running costs of that. So that would be generally a higher amount and then your bad debt on your principal place would be a lower amount. Now, yeah, as I mentioned before in that example, where people can get stuck is they pay down all this um, money on their principal place of residence, but then they turn it into an investment um, property. So they've got really low debt on that particular property, but then they've gone and bought their principal place of residence for the second time. And now they've got a really large portion of debt on that second property, which is all, which is now bad debt as well, right? So if we had our time again, what we may have done is, is um, kept more money in the offset account instead of paying that original property down if we knew it was going to be turned into an investment property. And this is the biggest, this is the biggest thing, right? It's looking to the future. And I think a lot of people get caught up in, I just want to get into the property market. I just need to get in and get it done. And when they're choosing their uh, loan product with their mortgage broker, they're often just thinking about the here and now and they're not forecasting. So there's a tip for you, particularly if you're a first home buyer that's actually going to turn that first home into an investment property, make sure you team up with a strategic mortgage broker who can help you shape that so it is most effective for you um, in the way that you structure your debt. So I hope that has answered Lana's question. It's a good question, Lana, and it's a common one, isn't it? And and I think just to to bookend that, it's it's like it's not the worst thing in the world that you're paying debt down, any type of debt. Yeah. You, you you obviously want to get rid of the debt over the over the journey, but it's just thinking strategically as to what sort of debt we focus on at any one time. Awesome. Now I've got more questions from Nikki, from Talia, and from James, but we're going to take a quick break, and we'll be right back to answer those questions. If you're after personal financial advice, don't get it from a podcast. If you would like help based on your own personal situation, head over to sortyourmoneyout.com, click get help, and we'd be happy to introduce you to one of our trusted advisors. We also have a panel of trusted mortgage brokers we can connect you with to get you into your first home, an investment property purchase, or to review your current loan if you don't have a broker. Our panel of advisors, mortgage brokers, and accountants work with clients all over Australia so they can connect with you wherever you are. That's sortyourmoneyout.com and click get help. Now, John, this is an interesting one from Nikki. 
the question is, land tax, is it best to have a townhouse as an investment to pay less land tax? Now, this is obviously around the fact that land tax is to do with the value of the land on which your property sits on. And one would uh, assume that Nikki's asking is a you know, a townhouse with less land, is that a better option to avoid paying more land tax? Very interesting question. I I have an opinion on this. I'm sure you do too. <laughs> Shoot from the hip, Emily. What's your opinion? <laughs> so, I think number one, you shouldn't be focusing as your main driver um, on the land tax that you pay on a property. Yes, we all want to pay less tax. I get it. I understand. But if paying less tax actually means that that property is not growing in value long term and it's not performing the way that you need it to, then although you've maybe paid less land tax on it, you're actually sacrificing and hurting yourself in the long run by having a property that might not perform as well as, let's say, a house on a decent quantity of land. Now, I'm not saying general rule of thumb, townhouse is a worse choice than a house on land by any means. But in this example, I just think it's really important not to channel your focus. There's always this focus on, oh, let's pay less tax. But I don't think that when you look at things in a big picture situation, that that is always the best financial decision. What do you think? No, that's a, a pretty good assessment. And I would agree wholeheartedly with that. I think we, we don't want, as you said, tax to be the, the main point of strategy for our purchase. And we've got multiple things to consider when we're taking into account what our strategy is going to be. Um, but generally, capital growth and cash flow uh, are the two main strategies that people want to go in with, which is which is fine, uh, because they're the ones that give us the best financial outcome. So land tax is only a small portion of that. Um, now, I think, keep in mind that land tax is state-based. So, you can easily keep under that land tax threshold in your particular state if you're diversifying into other states around the country. So think about that from a diversification point of view, but also if you're that wrapped up in trying to save money on, on paying land tax, then uh, that, that might be an alternative or a solution to, to your problem. And, and you just need to check in your state as to what your thresholds are. But as you mentioned, Emily, the, it's, it's on the land value, not the total value of the property you purchase. So I think like um, New South Wales might be 600, don't quote me on that, but in, in actual land value. So you may need um, a, a million dollar property for the land tax to be um, sort of reached and then that will increase over time because the land value does go up but also consider that it doesn't affect uh, your or, or it doesn't take into account your principal place of residence right so you would need probably to have maybe two even three properties in that particular state as investments for you to go over that land tax threshold and at the end of the day if you're making money that's that's a good thing correct now moving on to a question from Poll, which does feed into rent vesting, which is a common topic we get for the podcast, which I, you and I are both very passionate about, me being a present rent vester and you being a, a former past rent vester for a, a long period of time. But Paul Conway asks, is it worth buying a first home or an investment property instead? As my first purchase, I like where I rent. Now, can I just say, the amount of discovery calls I do, and I'm sure you do as well, John, of people in this debacle about what 
they do and toing and froing between should I just rent vest? Should I buy my own home? But if I, you know, in a lot of situations for people who are living in the inner city of the major capital cities, you know, sort of Brisbane, New South Wales, uh, Victoria, they would be sacrificing on the amount of space they may have. So classic example, let's take Melbourne for, for an example, inner city suburbs such as Armadale, St Kilda, Elwood, um, Coburg, Northcote, those places for a budget of say 800,000 is probably going to land you like a two bedroom apartment at best. So you can see why people start to debate if I love living in this area and the rent is a lot more cost effective than me paying back a mortgage of this amount plus body corporate plus rates and all the rest of it, then should I go and rent vest? And it's a very valid question. The thing I often find hard to quantify though is at what point does it make sense to rent vest? And that's probably the real question, isn't it? Really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a, a, definitely a couple of factors to take into consideration. It's not a one-size-fits-all approach. I think there's no better time to, to have a mortgage um, than it has in the last probably 40 years, to be honest, with interest rates being so low and paying down your, your debt quicker uh, than normal because your interest rates are 2 or 3% versus 5 or 6%. Uh, but... You're right. If if you can't buy something that you want in the suburb that you're living and you have to go 5, 10, 15, 20 m- minutes further out from town and that impacts your lifestyle and it's further to commute to work and your friends aren't there and, and you've just gone and done that for the sake of buying your own home to live in, then why are we doing all this? So I think your lifestyle needs to be um, factored in along with your emotions or your mindset for renting. Now, Paul said that he's happy rent vesting so or, or renting. He doesn't mind that experience. So let's do that unless you can buy something in your area for, for what, you, uh, what, what you think is a, a happy place to live. Uh, rent vesting is absolutely fine by me. You've got no bad debt in your life. Awesome. Love it. Hope that has helped you, Paul. Now, there was another question here that certainly piqued my interest. Oh, yes. Talia asked, um, how to research areas to buy in in regards to rental yield? Now, John, could we just first of all clarify how we calculate rental yield from a property because this term gets thrown around a lot, but I don't think many people actually know how to calculate it. Yeah, so rental yield, basically there's a gross rental yield and then there's net rental yield. So gross rental yield is the same formula no matter who you are. Uh, That is rent per week times by 52 weeks in the year uh, divided by your purchase price times by 100 to get a percentage, right? So uh, to give you an example of that, if you've got a, if you're looking at a say a $500,000 property and it's renting for $500 a week, that's roughly what we call dollar per thousand, it's roughly about 5%, 5.1% um, gross yield, right? Now the net yield on that depends on everyone's situation based on uh, what you can claim back against your tax rates. So it might be 32 cents, 37, or they're all changing, so it could be 30 or 40. Um, and, and that gives you your net yield outcome. So it's what uh, your your cash position is once all the deductions have been factored into. Okay. So in answer to Talia's question, how do we find our gross rental yields around the country? Well, 
there's a lot of websites that you can jump on and, and find. Uh, SQM Research is, is a good one to do. Uh, most of the information on there is free, but you do need to search by suburb. So I suppose what you need to do is uh, know where you're looking, first of all. Um, Back in the day, Emily, and showing my age here, the I don't know if it's even still around, the Australian Property Investor magazine. They stopped printing it. Do you know what? It was around. I used to buy it when I went to the um, airport back in the day. Yes, um, yes. Before I went on a flight and I've not seen it in a news agency for a long time. Yeah, that's right. So 15, 20 years ago, I used to buy it and rush to the back of the, of, of the edition because it always told me the growth in the last three months and six months and it told me the gross rental yield and all those sort of things. So I'd had it in, in one spot, which is awesome. Little did I realise it was about six months behind the times anyway, but but any case, uh, it was a, it was a good researching mechanism to to find uh, our yields and our growth in particular suburbs and towns around the country. So, yeah, I, I would go to SQM Research as a starting point if you've got areas of interest that you want to find out their gross rental yield. That's uh, that's a good place to start, and then just generally, if you know your areas. That you that you want to buy in, just just talk to agents, see what they're renting for, because uh, it does vary. Like the the stats on each postcode uh, are going to be averages. You can you can take an average as far as you want, but it's not going to be the actual fact until you actually see what that particular property is going to rent for. So the only way to do that is to uh, see a, a property for sale and then ask the property manager what what its uh, rental appraisal is. Yeah, and it always end up being property specific, obviously, based on location, accommodation, um, condition, all those sorts of things. So, but at least now we've defined what rental yield is because I think a lot of people, that equation alone is probably quite helpful for people. Um, we might even include it in the show notes down the bottom just to give you a rundown of, of how you calculate it. But um, hopefully that has helped you, Talia, and anybody else who's looking at rental yield when they're going to go forward for an investment property. Generally speaking, John, do you have like a benchmark of a minimum rental yield you want to see in an investment property? Like, is there a figure that doesn't make sense? Yeah, it does depend on your strategy and it does depend on your income level as well, because a higher income earner will be able to handle a lower rental yield, but they might not want to handle that because they want to make money, not essentially lose money. Now, I've always said logically, black and white, why would I go and heavily negatively gear property for the sake of reducing my tax uh, or, or getting a tax refund. Just never made sense to me. Um, so back when I first started, I was always aiming for a 6% gross yield across my portfolio. Now, I knew that that maybe wasn't going to happen straight away, but over the journey, your rents will increase each year. So your gross rental yield is going to gradually increase um, and, and obviously your net will as well. But in these times, I think it's reasonable to, to be able to achieve a 4% gross yield. Um, that may not be possible if you're looking in a Melbourne, in a Sydney for houses, but, um, but in other parts of the country, yeah, I think 4% is a gross yield will mean that with interest rates the way they are, it should be giving you a slight refund after uh, after tax and not costing you anything to hold net for that 12-month period. Awesome. 
Now, that's kind of round out today's episodes of questions. We've actually got more that we will do in another episode. But just before we finish up, particularly for those of you who are newer to the podcast um, or even just a refresher for some, I think it's really important just to let you know our different I guess where our different views come from because of the different markets that we work in. So John is very much more so in the investor space when it comes to buying property as a buyer's agent or a buyer's advocate. I myself are strictly into home ownership and first and family home buying. So there's always links in our show notes. I don't know if anyone reads the show notes, but if you do, um, (laughs) there's links down the bottom to find out more about both our respective areas. But I think it's so great that we can both wear a different hat and bring different viewpoints when we have these discussions and the questions that come forward Mm. um, because some of them will be more geared. I mean, that's why I ask you a lot about the, you know, if you don't know if you noticed, but I avoid some of the investment questions and I go, John, what do you think about? about that because uh, that's that's your specialty. Um, but yes, just so you guys are aware, we are both actually active uh, buyers advocates. We do buy property for a living. That's why we love talking about it and we hope that you guys have gained some knowledge and insight from the uh, responses we share to your questions. So, keep sending them in. Absolutely. They're awesome. We cannot replicate them because they're real. They've come from a real person and uh, we get to thrash it out together. Rightly or wrongly, we give our opinions. 100%. Thank you so much to everybody who submitted questions through my Instagram. You're way more likely to get an Instagram response from myself than John. (laughs) (laughs) I was going to say, I didn't see that post come up, did you? Was that a private post just to your fan group? No, it was a story, John. If you watch my Instagram stories, you would have seen it. Um, I tagged you in it. But anyway, yeah, I did. (laughs) All good. Until next week, have a great week ahead and we will speak with you soon. Bye. We acknowledge the dark and young people, traditional custodians of the land on which our studio sits, and pay respect to their elders, past and present. We extend that respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples who may listen to our podcast. Taking your property journey to the next level starts with education. That's why we make this podcast, but we've also created online courses to equip you with the knowledge you need to take the next steps. I've created the Solvair Online Academy, open to both first home buyers and seasoned investors, where I share my tips and experience from 20 years in the property space. And I've created the Buying Coach, built from my experience as a buyer's advocate to demystify the confusion around purchasing property, particularly for first home buyers. Follow the links in the show notes to sign up and get started today. This podcast is for education and entertainment purposes. Any advice is general financial advice only, which does not take into account your objectives, financial situation, or needs. Because of that, you should consider if the advice is appropriate to you and your needs before acting on the information. If you do choose to buy a financial product, read the product disclosure statement and obtain appropriate financial advice tailored to your needs. Simo Interactive, Proprietary Limited, the publisher of the podcast, is an authorized representative of Money Sherpa, Proprietary Limited, which holds financial services license 451289. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 